0: Well, thank you for that warm welcome. This is a wonderful uh, afternoon, and opportunity to conduct a press conference with the two newest Nobel laureates in economics. I'm Bob Durkee, the vice president and secretary here at Princeton University, and I'm going to take just a minute to explain what we're going to do over the next uh, hour or so. Um, Sitting up here on the stage, going from my uh, far right, are uh, Mark Watson, Professor of Economics and Public Affairs here at the university, who's the acting chair of the Department of Economics. Next to him, David Dobkin, a member of our faculty and dean of the faculty uh, here at Princeton University. John Stexton, uh, the president of New York University. Uh, coming onto this side of the podium, uh, Christopher Eisgruber, who is the provost here at Princeton University. I want to say at this point that our president, Shirley Tillman, is very sorry uh, that she can't be here this afternoon, but uh, Chris will be here and will uh, begin the press conference in just a moment. Uh, the next two uh, people will be introduced by uh, by Chris, um, the two new uh, Nobel laureates. Uh, what we're going to do is uh, I'll ask the provost uh, to say some brief words of uh, introduction. Uh, we will ask John Sexton if he would like to uh, add to that a bit. Uh, we will then ask the two new Nobel laureates to say a few words and then uh, they will come back to these places and we will take the questions uh, from the press. We may have some questions coming in um, uh, telephonically and we'll try to deal with them too, um, but when we get to the press uh, part of this uh, program. Uh, will begin with the folks down in, down in front. Um, I'm not going to say anything more except now ask the Provost, uh, Chris Eisgruber, if he will uh, begin the press conference.
1: Well, it's my great pleasure to be able to uh, welcome all of you to this very happy occasion and also to extend my congratulations along with those of President Shirley Tillman to Professor Chris Sims and Professor Tom Sargent for having been honored with the 2011 Nobel Prize in Economics. As you all know, the Nobel Prize recognizes achievements that are important both because of their extraordinary scholarly distinction and because of their contributions to human society. Chris and Tom, your accomplishments exemplify in the best possible way what Princeton University and New York University seek to do through their research missions. I know that I speak for my colleagues here on the platform, Dean of the Faculty David Dobkin and Chair of the Department of Economics Mark Watson, in saying that we feel very fortunate to have you here and that we are overjoyed to celebrate this moment with you. I realize that all of you are waiting to hear from our newest Nobel laureates, but I want to take a moment to say just a bit about their biographies, which will also, of course, now include the addition of Nobel laureate. Christopher Sims is currently the Harold H. Helm, Class of 1920, Professor of Economics and Banking at Princeton University. He joined our faculty in 1999 after previous appointments at Harvard, the University of Minnesota, and Yale University. He earned his bachelor's degree in mathematics from Harvard in 1963 and his doctorate in economics, also from Harvard, in 1968. Thomas Sargent is currently the Berkeley Professor of Economics and Business at New York University and is a visiting professor for part of this academic year here at Princeton. He joined NYU's faculty in 2002 after previous academic appointments at Stanford University, the University of Chicago, the University of Minnesota, and the University of Pennsylvania. He earned his bachelor's degree from the University of California at Berkeley in 1964 And like Chris Sims, his doctorate in economics from Harvard, also in 1968. I know that you're all waiting now to hear from uh, Chris and Tom. But as Bob mentioned, we're very fortunate to have with us here my good friend, the president of New York University, John Sexton. And John, I know that you would like to take this opportunity to say a few words of congratulations on behalf of NYU. John.
2: Thank you, Chris. Uh... This is a great day for the world, and it's a great day for our two universities. I want to add my voice to Chris's in congratulating our two laureates. I would add, uh, I would add this theme. Uh, there's a way in which uh, their work together, the fact that they teach a class this afternoon here together, the fact that their relationship goes back uh, for so long a time it is yet another illustration of the fact that uh, that knowledge is anything but a zero sum game uh, that uh, great universities uh, great universities work together, great minds work together for the advancement of humankind uh, NYU is proud of our Tom Sargent, but we 're proud of the joint endeavors of the two laureates together and the joint endeavors of our universities. I'm proud of the fact that Chris Eisgruber not only is a friend of decades, but that uh, I was the dean who gave him his first job. <laughs> and uh, and, and I, was very, I was very proud when Princeton made him the, uh, the, the, the provost here. I consider it uh, a gift from NYU uh, to Princeton. Uh, and I remembered in 2002 a year into my time as president when Tom Sargent joined our faculty. And I would just like to say this, uh, if there were a Nobel laureate uh, for simple mentorship and for sheer humanity, uh, he might be winning those today as well. Uh, This is the complete package. Congratulations to both of our laureates and uh, onward and upward together. Thank you.
0: So, John, thank you for those words and for the gift of Chris Eisgruber. And now, um, Chris Sims, can we ask you to go to the podium and and say a few words?
3: Um, I couldn't be happier to be getting this prize, and I especially to be getting it uh, with Tom whom I've known a long time um, I'm not so sure it's right to say we have worked together it's more we have a series of continuing arguments <clears throat> uh... many of which are still going on uh, as I slowly persuade him of the error of his earlier positions um, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I also like to think of the award as uh, representing an award for uh, an approach to economics that insists on recognizing the uncertainty surrounding our theories and trying to deal formally with those uncertainties using the tools of statistics and out of that to develop um, ideas and insights and models that can uh, improve real economic uh, decision making. There are many, many people who've contributed to the growth of these areas of economics, uh, many of them working now both in academic departments and uh, in central banks and governments around the world, and I hope they all feel that this award is uh, in part to them.
4: Okay, so um, first, I th- thank my students for being here. It's, I appreciate that. Um, so um, it's wonderful to um, have this field recognized. And for me, it's uh, particularly heartwarming to, to share it with Chris. I'd um, Actually, um, so this isn't a solo operation, the kind of research we do. So we're dependent on our, um, our colleagues and our students. And um, so I've had wonderful co-authors. Um, so I've learned a lot from Chris. I've learned a lot, um, I actually have character by by uh, not getting sore at his uh, criticisms, by trying to, trying to take them seriously and changing things for the better. I've had wonderful co-authors. Um, Neil Wallace was one who took me when I didn't know anything and uh, told me that and told me to learn things, told me to start taking some classes. Um, it, the University of Minnesota. Then I had a wonderful student, uh, Lars Hansen, who's um, I've written a lot of papers with and has taught me a lot. And he's um, <clears throat> and and has, has made, made my work better um, and shared his work with me. Um, and then I'd like to thank the universities, NYU where I am now, but universities where I was in the past. Um, Minnesota was a wonderful place, um, partly because Chris and Neil were there. And then I had the good luck to be at Chicago and Stanford where I met people that changed my mind on things and met students who showed me new possibilities. Okay, so um, what's this area about? So my co-author and good friend, Tim Cogley, uh, says this about statistics. Uh, He says, we don't know everything, but that doesn't mean we know nothing. And the kind of... uh, tradition that Chris and I work in is using a combination of statistics and models with more or less economics in it um, to say what we can about the world. Um, and we, we're basically statistical historians. We study, we comb the past in a disciplined way, past economic events for the most part, um, to tell, give us clues about what will happen in the future if there's some kind of stability And um, we also work in the tradition where um, it takes a model uh, to beat a model, and Chris and others have elevated what it means by a model, um, something that a mathematician or or a statistician would recognize. So we build models in which, uh, along with many people at Princeton and NYU um, and other places, we build models where people's expectations about what the government is going to do are really important in influencing events. And those expectations can't be just arbitrary, because they depend on partly on what the government's going to do. And what the government's going to do partly depends on those expectations. And um, building statistical models that incorporate that um, is a noble enterprise. And, um, and it's, uh, it's all we have to understand and improve the world in economics.
0: Okay, we're going to open this to the press. For those who are watching this outside this room, would you wait until you have a microphone uh, and then ask your question? Uh, Anyone want to start with the first question? Okay, this could be the shortest press conference on record. (laughs) Nobody has a Uh, question. You have a question.
1: Hi, uh, Walter Brandymart with Reuters. Uh, I wanted to
3: ask uh, you professors if we have to take, if your work is about taking the expectations uh, of of what people think the government is going to do, I wanted to, to see your opinion about what the government has done so far in the United States to uh, support the economy. If you think it has been appropriate, uh, how can we actually, Uh, support the economy, create jobs? You know, those questions everybody are asking themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think part of the point of this prize and the area that we work in is that... um, that answers to questions like that require uh, careful thinking, a lot of data analysis, uh, and that the answers are not likely to be simple. So that uh, asking Tom and me for answers off the top of our heads to these questions is, uh, uh, you shouldn't expect much uh, from us. <laughs> um, my own view is that, that. Um, What we ought to do is the kind of thing that uh, Chairman Ben Bernanke has urged uh, the U.S. government to do, make good long-run plans for uh, resolving our budget difficulties uh, without imposing severe fiscal stringency in the short run, and that accommodative monetary policy is a good idea. But these are not very original ideas. Uh, I think 80 percent of the economics profession would agree with this. Um, the problem is to figure out how in the real
4: world to get these things done. Yeah, I don't have uh, much to add to that. Maybe maybe uh, um, I was hoping you were going to ask about Europe. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh... So, um...
0: I think one of the privileges of being a Nobel laureate is if you want to answer a question about Europe, you can do that.
4: <laughs> so... So, but let me, let me, so here's a phrase that you hear. It's partly about language. You hear that um, U.S. fiscal policy is unsustainable. You hear that over and over again. You actually hear it from both parties. Um, and um, that can't possibly be true um, because uh, government budget constraints are going to make it sustainable. So, so what, what they mean is that certain promises that people have made about taxes, entitlements... Uh, Medicare, Medicaid, those are incredible. They're not going to fit together. So um, so the U.S. fiscal policy is uh, sustainable. It's very uncertain. It's uncertain because it's not clear which of these uh, incredible promises are going to be broken first. Um, so... It's just language, um, and it's all just about a government, a budget constraint, and that's something that's in every theory. But just thinking in terms of the government budget constraint, and then it takes you to the heart of the problem. And You, you notice it sort of takes you, well, what do you think's going to happen? Do you think, uh, do you think Social Security is going to be cut, or do you think uh, taxes and capital are going to be increased? And what's going to happen is going to, uh, well, depend partly on what you think is going to happen. Um, but also about what actual policy is. Do you want to say something about Europe? That's on, uh, maybe if somebody asks that. (laughs) Okay, someone has a microphone.
1: What about Europe?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nicely done. Chris?
3: I wrote a paper quite a while ago called The Precarious Fiscal Foundations of EMU, um, much of which is relevant to the discussion today. Um, That paper was about the intertwining of fiscal and monetary policy, uh, a theme on which both Tom and I have worked over the years, um, and just trying to bring out the implications of the fact that the euro was was founded with a central bank, but with no unified fiscal authority capable of issuing bonds and, making ta- and imposing taxes on its own. And that made it extremely unusual and raised questions about what would happen when the need for fiscal monetary coordination arose. And it certainly has arisen. Um, my view is that if the euro is to survive, it will have to work out the euro area, will have to work out a way to uh, to uh, share fiscal burdens and uh, connect uh, fiscal authority to the ECB in the role of lender of last resort. Uh, right now, none of those connections are clear, and if those connections uh, remain unclear, or people try to go back to a system in which there is, in fact, no central fiscal backing for the ECB. I think the uh, prospects for the euro are dim.
4: <clears throat> so I'm. I'm going to repeat the same theme. Um, just give you an example. <clears throat> United States at the founding of our republic, after our second revolution, which is the one that the Constitution was written. So here's the initial conditions. In the 1780s, the United States is a, a basket case. There's 13 sovereign governments. There's 13 states. They have the ability to uh, raise taxes and print money. We have 13. We have a a very weak center. Does this remind you of anything? (laughs) Um, We have a very weak center that can print money, can't raise taxes. It's dependent on the individual states for contributions. They typically don't make them. The consequence, U.S. state, every of the 13 states, they all have debt, and the center has debt. It's going like eurobonds. They're going at deep discount. Um, the government has no ability to... They're going at 10, 20 cents on a dollar. I'm getting this from a paper written by someone at NYU. So what happens is that basically the... Cut through a lot of details. The creditors of the government, um, for various reasons, they take over. And they write a constitution. Here's another thing we can't do. We, we can't have a coherent trade policy. The British are discriminating us badly in trade. Um, we have 13 different trade policies, um, and they're playing one off against the other. And then the Constitution of the United States does the following. It gives the federal government the monopoly to issue, to levy the one tax that really raises revenues, a tariff in those days. It gives the federal government a monopoly, think of what Chris was saying, a monopoly on the ability to have a trade policy, there's a coordinated trade policy, um, states can't impose import or export taxes, um, And then simultaneously the federal government assumes all the debts of the state debts and it raises tariffs. First thing Alexander Hamilton and and, uh, George Washington did is they raised taxes and they raised them enough to, uh, they're they're basically spending 85% of U.S. US government revenues to service the bonds. And the bonds go from being a deep discount to going at par. And... um, That's how we were born, and uh, we were born with a a determined solution to the problem that Europe is facing now, and it was a comprehensive solution done in a certain order. It was all done simultaneously through uh, something, a process that looks like a miracle. The older you get, the more miraculous, and the more you watch Europe, the more miraculous that you will see. But in terms of, you know, George Stigler said, A war can ravage half a continent and raise no new issues in economic theory. And like Chris said, there's no new issues in economic theory with Europe and the euro. And uh, Alexander Hamilton kind of knew him. The the difficult thing is the politics. And uh, I can't help you with that, but maybe someone else can.
0: One of the uh, journalists who's following us on Facebook asks whether you can say anything about uh, whether there are any particular impacts of your work on Latin American economies,
4: um, Chris? <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so um, I don't know, but so, so I wrote a paper um, a long time ago about. Um, how to stop hyperinflations. And it was, it was an empirically based, basic. a little bit of theory, basically the theory Chris just talked about. It was about how to start and how to stop a hyperinflation. And the way you start it is you get uh, you get fiscal policy out of control, run sustained deficits, and then you have a monetary authority that has to monetize government debt. And um, that will always work. And then how do you stop hyperinflations? What did I say in that paper? Stop doing it. Um, and... Um, and what's true is, if you look look at Latin America in the in the 19 um, um, this isn't high economic theory, and it's not it's not incredible data analysis. But if you actually look at um, if you look at Latin America from the 1970s and 80s, where they had a bunch of hyperinflations, and then they stopped them, they stopped them using this old time religion. So um, um, actually, the and, and Like, if you ask who stopped hyperinflation in Brazil, it was the poor people, because in, in inflation is a tax mainly on poor people, and in, in Brazil, the coalition that stopped it was, um, was a, um, a coalition that was sensitive to that. So that was the politics there, but um, the economics is what I just described. Chris? Uh,
3: another Latin American policy issue, I don't know whether it had any impact on it, but uh, the issue of dollarization, which was a popular policy suggestion a few years ago in, in Latin America. Um, I um, commented in po- panel discussions and um, wrote some discussion papers that were never published, but about this issue from the pers- same kind of perspective on the interactions of fiscal and monetary policy that we've been talking about, in which I argued that... Um, the benefits of dollarization were perhaps being overplayed um, because people weren't considering uh, the impacts of dollarization on fiscal policy. Uh, In fact, some of the most naive interpretations seem to think that by dollarizing uh, uh, a Latin American country could start borrowing at the same rate as the U.S. Treasury, which um, fairly simple economic analysis uh, showed uh, was very unlikely to be true, um, and I guess dollarization has become a less popular policy description, uh, prescription
0: in the last several years. Other questions? Out here? Okay, in the back.
3: Hi, I'm Jen Maxfield from WABC-TV. Uh, something perhaps a little less highbrow, but could both of the professors please explain how you were informed that you had won the prize? In particular, Professor Sims, I think there was an issue with the phone. (laughs) Yes, we, um, this was all my wife Kathy's fault. She's sitting right over there. (laughs) Um, The phone was next to her, um, and it was 6.15 and dark, and um, uh, so the phone rang, and... We mumbled to each other that it must be a wrong number, um, and she picked up the phone and fumbled with it and could not find the talk button in the dark. So the phone stopped ringing, and we decided it probably was a wrong number and we're going to go back to bed. But then I said, wait a minute, if the Nobel Prize would actually call at this time. So. <laughs> So I checked using my, um, using my smartphone um, where the area code was. And the area code seemed to be from Texas. <laughs> so we decided it was a crank call, and we went back to bed. <laughs> uh, then they called, and uh, Kathy said, Well, if it is a prank, they're doing a pretty good Swedish accent. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh. Uh, someone called me and they said, "Do you know uh, how to get a hold of Chris Sims?"
0: <laughs> and that call came from Texas.
2: <laughs>
4: I didn't check.
0: <laughs> All right, another. Is there another question no, over here? Mm-hmm, down in front, Ruth, where are you?
3: I, I'm Jason from Xinhua News Agency from China. And uh, first of all, I'd like to congratulate uh, both of you, uh, Professor Sims and Pre- Professor Sargent, uh for being awarded the Nobel Prize. Uh, my question is about China's uh, economy. As you may uh, noted, that uh, China's economy is slowing down, while the inflation is very high. So it seems that uh, uh, maybe the Aggressive monetary policy right now is not the uh, good choice for China's economy. So, uh, in your opinion, in your view, uh, what is the better uh, policy, uh, monetary policy or fiscal policy, for the Chinese economy right now? Thank you. I think. A message of both Tom's and my research is that the question of whether fiscal or monetary policy is better for reacting to a uh, to the state of the economy is uh, is a, not a good que- not a well posed question that um, monetary policy always has fiscal implications and and vice versa and um, it's dangerous to I think that one of the po- two kinds of policies can by itself take care of an economic problem if the other policy is off on a different track. Um, I don't know enough about uh, the Chinese economy to offer any very specific uh, prescriptions for how they should deal with their current situation, I'm afraid.
0: No. Yes. Okay, another question? All right, I'm going to ask one then. Um, I think um, both Princeton and NYU are very proud of the fact that uh, not only have you uh, been conducting your research at these two institutions, but you have been teaching uh, at these two institutions. Can you say a little bit about, I know you in fact later this afternoon you need to go off and teach, can you say a little bit about um, what you've been teaching?
4: Do you want to go first? No <laughs> um, so um, i 'll tell you what i 've been trying to teach so um, so f- f- the first thing is is what the so um, so there 's a, um, so a model of uh, dynamic economies under uncertainty that 's kind of a workhorse model of uh, all good uh, applied economists and theoretical economists, and um, like like any model, it puts it makes it's a, it's an abstraction. It makes uh, very s- simple assumptions that aren't realistic. Um, but um, ho- hopefully, what it captures is good, and what it leaves out is not essential. That's the idea. But so in my first year class, I teach this basic model because you have to understand it if you want to criticize it. And in my second year class. Try criticizing and try to um, improve it. And like one of the things, um, so one of the things both Chris and I've used is this idea of rational expectations, um, which is also used in game theory. It's called like um, it's a it's a it's a assumption that people basically understand what's going on, and um, that you can't fool them. So that um, statistically, they use probability distributions about the future that are that are are consistent with the data. It turns out to be a very powerful idea. Um, but then, then, um, is it applicable? Sometimes it is. Um, sometimes it's incredible. So so what do you do when it's uh, not applicable? So so the second year class, we're trying to scratch our heads and figure out how to go beyond it uh, without, without being totally nihilistic and throwing out everything. So we're trying to improve rational expectations. And... Um, I do this differently than Chris, but I'd say he's done, we try to do the same thing. So in our class, I tell him one way to do them, and he tells him another way, and hopefully some some will happen. Um,
3: Well, this semester, besides sharing a second-year graduate course with Tom, I'm also teaching the undergraduate money and banking course um, at Princeton. That's, of course, going through the basics, though the basics have changed in the last couple of years. <clears throat> so it's a little more work than it might be because um, you can't use some five-year-old textbook and just follow it. <clears throat> um, in uh, graduate teaching, I teach time series uh, econometric methods. Those are the, the tools of statistics that um, we use to evaluate models and estimate them and use them to Uh, project the effects of policy. I teach in an area, uh, I do this mostly in the uh, second half of the course that Tom and I are uh, teaching together, uh, that I've labeled rational inattention. Uh, This is applications of information theory to economics. It's uh, a version of the agenda that Tom described, um, trying to go beyond the assumption that everybody in the economy understands the whole structure of the economy by recognizing that everybody has to be processing information as they make economic decisions and looking into the implications of simply asking suppose people have limited capacity to process information in the same sense that engineers postulate that a telephone line or a, a broadcast channel has a limited capacity to transmit information. And it turns out that uh, bringing that kind of uh, formal thinking about limited information transmission to bear on economics has some promise in explaining some otherwise uh, anomalous behavior uh, that we observe. Um, and finally, I teach uh, I, in, I teach in this same macro, advanced macro course. Um, Um, material on interactions of monetary and fiscal policy trying to drive home the point that's not really there in many of the standard models that people use, that monetary and fiscal policy are never really completely distinct.
0: Are there any further... Yes, down here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hello. Um I'm Shin Young Kim from Joseon Daily Newspaper of South Korea. Uh, I have two simple questions. What are you planning to do with your price money? And the second one is since I came from New York this morning, uh, do you have any view on the um, protests going on on Wall Street? <laughs> well,
4: I
3: already, I already told... Um, the, I answered a question about this I think in the Nobel press conference I'm not going to do anything with it for a while just think about what's a, what's a good way to deploy it <laughs> uh, I'm not going to try to decide that today um, the money and about the process going on in Wall Street my impression is that uh, their objectives are fairly incoherent um, I was a as a college student, a protester myself. I marched on Washington to end nuclear tests, uh, and I'm proud of that. Um, So I don't have any um, fundamental objection to protests, and I think these protests do reflect people's uh, a legitimate uh, irritation that um, policymakers don't seem to have been able to restart the economy, and many people are hurting um, because of what's happened to the economy, uh, it would be nice if they were more careful about formulating realistic policy objectives. Uh, but as an expression of anger and outrage, I think it's legitimate. Okay, from the phone lines, we do have a question
4: from the line of Paolo Montolili with La Sampa, Italy. Please go ahead. Okay.
3: I would like
4: to know if, in order to see the euro, you think that some of the weakest countries should uh, leave the uh, currency. Um, that's not okay. So, in all due respect, that's not um, a question that I, as an economist, can answer. So, my little story about um, the United States: there were some pretty weak currencies there, and none of them left. And. You know, Alexander Hamilton's... So why did Alexander Hamilton want to nationalize the debt? Because he wanted the creditors of those individual states to become supporters of the central government, not the state government. So he was, he was using some game theory. Um, um, so he saw possibilities like that. So could, could something like that happen in uh, Europe? Uh, sure. Are, are, are there some people who are betting on that? Yes. Are there some people who are hoping for that? Yes. Um, are there some people who hope the other way? Yeah. So um, we need some... Uh, that's all.
0: Chris, do you want to add to that answer?
4: Uh, no. I,
3: I, Tom's point is that's a really a question about how the politics are going to work out. Uh, I think that... Um, I think it is... One additional point is that the notion that things will get uh, settled in the euro if only some weak countries leave it uh, is unrealistic. Uh, the, um, that might happen as part of the evolution of the, of the system, but it's, uh, it's in no sense uh, a cure for the problems that face the euro.
0: <clears throat> and did you want to add to the earlier question, or are you okay on that about protest?
4: protest? What you're going to do with the money? Um, so, uh, the question about money, yep. I'm a living illustration of Sims's, uh, I actually like it that he says it's rational inattention. Um, I don't look, it's, I, I'll just say that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Other questions? Out uh, here, there's a question, ah, over there. Okay, and you have a mic. Terrific.
4: Um, so uh, the work that you both of you did in the past was uh, indeed groundbreaking, and I wonder if, if you could uh, tell us a bit about some recent work that, that we don't all know about and that you would consider um, groundbreaking or, you know, a, a lot of potential for the future. Uh, I know it's hard sometimes to predict this, but at least w- what are your expectations are. And, okay, I hope it's not a shrewd comment. I, go first.
3: I think it's hard to predict what's going to be uh, groundbreaking. It's, it'll probably be something that um, that those of us of Tom's and my age uh, think is ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> so um, uh, I wouldn't uh, really want to predict. It, this rational inattention idea I have my fingers crossed that it could uh, provide a, a lot of progress. There's been a steadily expanding number of papers applying it to different fields, so it might turn out to be an, a new big thing, but um, as with most new ideas, probably not. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how to make a better prediction than that.
4: Um, I just. Uh, um Without categorizing, I'll I'll tell you one thing I'm excited about. So it's a project that I'm working on with a friend, George Hall. His friend, Chris is too. So um, it's very pretentious. Um, We're going to write a monetary and we're going to write a fiscal history of the United States. So we're we're collecting data on um, basically everything the United States has done since the beginning of the Republic to now, fiscally, and um, we're looking at the data in light of a few few models to, to uh, see if we can tell us about some, some of the things we have today we've experienced in the past, some we haven't. So um, we just want to organize the data in an intelligent way and see what it says. And um, we've already encountered a few surprises that the ta- past has taught us. A
0: uh, question over here. Where's? Hold on for the mic.
1: I'm Jeff Balbohill from the Associated Press. And I wanted to see if you could tell us more about the ongoing arguments, how long ago they started, and what issues you continue to argue over.
4: <laughs> um, do you want to go first? No, you go first. <laughs> um. So, in you know, all due respect, Chris isn't always the easiest person to understand when he says something the first time. Um, So, so the the things that I've learned from him are basically on two two levels. One is he's been extremely generous uh, in commenting on papers. And um, I have a large set of his comments on my papers. And they they start like this Uh, This paper is deeply flawed. (laughs) <laughs> and then, and then, and then you, um, uh, you read on. You read on. Then you, and then typically, they'll often have something at the end. Like I remember one of the first ones. It said, um, "Rereading the preceding uh, paragraphs, you may th- makes me think that you may think that uh, I'm completely negative about your paper." This is not necessarily true. <laughs> and then uh, that, that gives you hope. So <laughs> typically, typically, typically there's gems in there if you listen. So that's, that's been very generous. Then the other thing is kind of comments at seminars and uh, things where he'll make some comment, you know, and say, what is he talking about? And then um, but it'll stay in there because you know who's talking. You'll stay in there and then, um, oh, my God, you know, you, you'll realize that he's, oh, he's, he's told you how to... He's, he's told you how to crack things. And I'm not alone in having had this experience. Um, I see a couple of his students there, and, uh, and, uh, and it's uh, not always a... It's not a pleasant experience when you're going through it, but today it feels really pleasant. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So I thought I should say something about what we actually disagree about. <laughs> uh, or have disagreed about.
1: Um,
3: um, one area that we have drawn out in our the two times we've taught this um, advanced macro course is um, over the question of whether uh, Leonard Savage's uh, Bayesian decision theory um, really needs revision. Um, uh, Tom and our joint student Lars Hansen have done a lot of work on uh, on applying variations on decision theory that attempt to go beyond Savage's framework and um, I've been skeptical that these are really helpful for practical decision making. And if you want to understand these debates, uh, you can look at our web pages. <laughs> um, we also had a long-running uh, argument about um, a topic that's summarized in, in a paper of Tom's that I think is called Vector Autoregressions and Advice, something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which um, was about the question of um, whether... Um, whether how 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 policy how economists can give advice to policymakers, and indeed whether it's really possible for economists to give useful advice to policymakers. Um, Tom in this paper set up a straw man that he called me, uh, <laughs> which he in who who he claimed. Uh, essentially had to conclude there was no way to give any um, useful advice, whereas his approach uh, provided a way to give useful advice. And uh, I argued back over with, to him over the years that uh, this wasn't true um, and that um, there's lots of room for us to give policymakers advice. Um, I think no economist actually ever comes to the conclusion that he can't give policymakers any advice. <laughs>
4: Want time for a while. Yeah, could I say something about this? Um, so the, so the, the first thing, it's it's so I, it's true. I wrote that paper, and then I got two I got two uh, comments on that. I got Chris uh, a message from Chris. This paper may represent somebody's views, perhaps your views, but it doesn't represent mine. Okay. Then the other, I got a mess. I got a message from our friend John, uh, Bob Lucas at Chicago, and he said. With friends like you, Chris doesn't need enemies.
2: <laughs>
4: is there another
0: handout there? I'm going to ask one more question then that came in um, on the Internet. Uh, this is a question I'm just reading the question. Um, do you consider that your award is a vindication of modern macroeconomics and the rational expectations concept?
4: Um okay, that's between the models and the data. Um, <laughs>
3: <laughs> um Yeah, you know, the the um the vindication for real scientific advance in economics is not any prize. Um it is I think Good for for, uh, modern macroeconomics quantitatively based, that the that the Nobel Prize gives public attention to our approach. Now the question asked about whether it's a vindication for modern macroeconomics and rational expectations. Modern macroeconomics is a huge array of stuff, a lot of it mutually contra- contradictory. Um, so I don't know how it could be a, a, a vindication for that. And furthermore, Tom and I have in the recent years been heavily occupied with trying to go beyond strict rational expectations. Uh, so to claim that this is a vindication of rational ex- expectations isn't, couldn't be, possibly be right. Right. Um, and the, uh, but I, I think that there have been attacks on quote modern macroeconomics and quote rational expectations by people who would like to believe that um, highly technical, careful, statistically based macroeconomics led us into our recent great contraction. Um, This is a caricature, and, uh, in fact, my view is that technical, careful, statistically-based macroeconomics is our hope for getting out of the current um, difficulties.
0: I think we have time for one more question, if there is one more question. Somebody's pointing to somebody. Okay, I see a hand. You don't have a microphone, but be loud. i Oh, good.
3: Well, this was a precept. Um, in money and banking, if any of you are here from that course, you know that there were 85 people at the first lecture and 26 people handed in the first exercise, which involved a rather difficult model solution. Uh, So the precept has, I think, six students registered, five showed up. Uh, There wasn't that much fanfare.
0: (laughs) Well, there will be fanfare to come, I'm sure. Thank you for that uh, final question. Thank you, Chris and Tom, for being here this afternoon. Um, there is um, going to be a reception immediately following this press conference uh, over in the common room at Rockefeller College. Those of you who don't know the campus, if you walk out the door, just follow the signs to, uh, to Rockefeller uh, College. Uh, thank you both for uh, being here uh, this afternoon and taking these questions, uh, and congratulations again.